This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. And this week we are in conversation with John Dean. Uh, now John is a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University who works a lot on issues to do with charities and volunteering. Uh, and he's also the author of a new book called The Good Glow, Charity and the Symbolic Power of Doing Good, which we are centering the discussion around today. Uh, and I certainly thoroughly recommend the book. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy, so I've had a good look through it. And it's a really interesting read, so definitely check that out. And John and I had a good wide-ranging conversation uh, about the way in which sort of charity functions um, within society and kind of in social situations, which is kind of the, the focus of his book. So we talked about, you know, the idea that... Um, People get a reward from giving uh, in the form of a warm glow, um, as kind of economists have posited. But what that means when we're talking about the sort of social aspects of the rewards from from giving and philanthropy uh, in terms of kind of how it uh, improves other people's perceptions of you or kind of, you know, enhances your own social status. We talked about whether uh, kind of awareness of that function of charity and giving can actually undermine its ability to perform that role. So kind of the more we become aware that charity is, is a way of boosting people's status um, actually it makes it less effective at doing that we talked about the way in which at a sort of elite level people um, you know throughout history have used giving as a way to kind of burnish their reputations and sometimes deflect criticism away from perhaps the way in which they've made their money or you know the way in which they've managed their tax affairs talk a reasonable bit about the incumbent president of the united states of america donald trump um, who features in john's book as an example uh, of kind of how this uh, idea of using the trappings of charity to burnish one's own reputation can be taken to, to an extreme. So there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, we talked about the way in which uh, the idea of uh, kind of the good glow from charity uh, relates to the increasing uh, tendency to, to sort of make charitable pledges rather than straightforward donations and whether separating the, the statement that you're going to make a gift from the actual act of making the gift is potentially problematic because you get all of the rewards up front and then and the, uh, the incentive to actually make the gift in the end is perhaps uh, less. We talked about how the desire to use charity uh, for social status relates to some donors' desire to remain anonymous and whether people sort of generally mean it when they say they want to, uh, to remain anonymous in their giving, using uh, the example that John uses in the book about a great episode of curb your enthusiasm we also talked uh, about how the social media has kind of changed the landscape when it comes to people talking about their giving and sort of using it to represent themselves socially because it's kind of democratized the ability to have a, a very widespread public public image we also then talked about the the kind of symbolic power of charities themselves as organizations and how they use that power and how it it can end up potentially sort of creating problematic unintended consequences so there's a whole chapter in John's book about the idea of sort of poppy fascism and when when the kind of the, the failure to be seen to be doing something linked to charity becomes sort of more problematic than and almost makes it kind of involuntary uh, and then we talked about how some of the ideas in in John's book relate to what is going on at the moment during the COVID-19 
pandemic and some of the interesting things we're seeing, certainly here in the UK, about how people are responding and kind of the the way in which people are giving much more prominence to elements of the public sector, particularly the NHS. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Uh, and I will be back at the end for a little bit of housekeeping and tidying up. OK, great. Uh, so I'm here with John Dean. Hi there, John. Hi, Rodri. Uh, and John is a uh, lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, where he sort of specialises in looking at all kinds of issues around charity and volunteering. Uh, and more importantly for the conversation today is the author of a new book called The Good Glow, uh, Charity and the Symbolic Power of Doing Good. Um, so maybe the best place to start, John, is just for you to say a bit about what the book is about um, and kind of, you know, what, what you want people to take from it. Sure thing. So the book is a sociological exploration of how charity works in society. The title is borrowed from work by James Andrioni, who's a famous economist who, who discussed something he called the warm glow, the warm glow that we all get from giving, where we feel slightly better about ourselves having given. And I, for a long time, have thought about the way in which charity also makes us look good to others, that we think more of those people who are charitable, we think more of those people who do lots of things for other people, we have a tendency, quite rightly as society, to um, think uh, better of those people. And so the good glow is an exploration of how that power works in society, how we um, tend to respect more or put on a pedestal those people who give large amounts of charity or do lots of voluntary work or are very kind and helpful to their neighbours but also what that means and how that affects people's behaviours. There are some people looking to take advantage of that for instance or to what extent do charities use that moral legitimacy and authority that they have because they're not doing things for the profit motive to what extent can they use that authority to uh, hold sway with policy to convince people about the importance, exploring positives and negatives, if you will, of the extent to which charity enables people uh, to look good or surround themselves with a good glow or put a halo on their head. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of that, you were saying there, the, the starting point being kind of extrapolating from that idea of the the, the warm glow and the sort of attempt by economists to put, put put some measure of selfishness back into the act of giving so that it makes sense. Um, so it, the, it always strikes me the warm glow kind of could be interpreted on the one hand as a kind of an internal thing about how it makes you as an individual feel. And you see lots of explanations about, you know, looking at functional MRI and things about dopamine release in the brain. But then there's always the, the other bit, which is about the the social function of charity and, and the version of the warm glow you get from the effect that your acts have on the way in which other people view and treat you. So is it kind of that second bit that is that is the focus of what you're you're looking at in the book? Yes, very much so. To what extent does giving to charity or doing stuff for charity enhance your reputation. And that's not to be cynical, particularly. I think it's perfectly valid that people get a warm glow from giving. It's perfectly legitimate if you do something nice for someone else that you feel good about it. And it's perfectly valid that people might go, well, they're a good person because they constantly are doing things for other people or helping out at a food bank or donating things to a, 
um, an important cause. It's when people start to do the charity purposefully to burnish their reputation in some way, when they start going, well, maybe I'm in a sticky hole here in some way, I need to suddenly look good in some way, and so I rush out to uh, give something to charity and brag about my charitable giving, um, and there's some very recent funny examples of people who are doing that in very uh, inconspicuous ways, and they start to uh, show off about their charity because they know that charity is a good thing that is highly thought of in society and so therefore they uh, try and take advantage of that reputation enhancement that comes from their giving. Yeah absolutely you've got some interesting um, examples in the book I think of that happening at various different levels from the the kind of um, you know level all of us can have and there's some really interesting stuff in the book about you know the social media and the kind of phenomenon of humble bragging which I think we'll, we'll come on to in a bit but also at that higher level and you, you use the example of uh, the, the incumbent president of the USA for example Donald Trump who has it seems very kind of overtly taken on some of the clothing of of charitable acts in order to burnish his reputation without actually doing any of the substance of that that charity um, one thing I wondered in, in reading in the book is um, a question about whether, you know, our, our own awareness, as you say, of the symbolic power of charity can mean that we start to sort of focus on trying to take advantage of that without starting from, from kind of why we want to do the charitable act for more kind of purely altruistic reasons. But equally, does, does our, the wider awareness of others about that symbolic power of charity have an effect on on how how kind of useful that symbolic power is. So if other people are sort of aware that there is this good glow and that people might be using it to burnish their own reputation, does that diminish the the power of charity to do that? To a certain extent, unfortunately, yes. I think we live in a world that is increasingly cynical and is probably looking for hidden motivations in people's actions. And as you, and that can lead to some quite undercutting of people's uh, goodness. I spoke to a lot of um, young people about how they feel about their friends talking about their charity on social media. So let's say they're doing some simple fundraising uh, for a cause that's important to them, or they're doing it themselves. And what do they feel when they see people talking about their charity online? And increasingly, they feel worried that they might be seen as showing off to their friends, that their friends might not think they're genuine in their giving but they might feel that oh no they're only doing this in order to look good on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and that ties into a wider social and cultural concern that social media is quite fake it's a place for people to uh, burnish their reputations in some impressive ways and so therefore trying to understand what on your Facebook feed is real and what is uh, someone just writing a post in order to look better or present themselves as better is increasingly problematic and I'm, I don't really want us to get into a where we're very cynical about charity or that we're always looking for oh they're only doing that for this reason that wealthy philanthropist is only giving for uh, to take advantage of a tax break or they're only doing it for good media headlines I don't think that analysis uh, is useful if it doesn't also come with uh, some genuine reflection on is this a good thing to be giving to is this a useful donation why are they doing this 
I think the Donald Trump example that you mentioned, though, is so egregious, so transparent that you're left, if that's all you knew about wealthy giving and how foundational giving worked, you'd leave the room going incredibly cynical about the entire enterprise. Just to explain uh, for the listeners, um, David Farenthold won a Pulitzer Prize for the Washington Post for a series of reporting he did in 2015 and 16 about Donald Trump's giving and his foundation. He tells a story about how in 1996, um, the charity Association to Benefit Children in New York held a ribbon cutting event to celebrate a new nursery for children with AIDS. Um, they'd had a wealthy donor, a guy called Stephen Fisher, who'd given them a lot of money for this new nursery. And they were having a ribbon cutting event to celebrate this donation and this new building and this new enterprise. During the event, Donald Trump just walked into the room, got on the dais with the mayor of New York and other dignitaries who were there, and basically pretended that he'd given the money to the nursery. He joined in with the songs that the children were singing. He just stood on the dais like the magnificent donor and just um, sort of wrapped himself in the applause. And the, the charity staff were very embarrassed and just had to say, I'll just get through it, let's just get through it. And at the end of the event, Trump just walked out. He'd never given a penny to this charity, but he knew that by being in front of the cameras, being next to Mayor Giuliani, who it was at the time, soaking up this um, respect and uh, reputation that you get from uh, being involved with that sort of cause is more important than actually doing the giving that actually you don't actually need to reach your hand in the po in your pocket in order to benefit from the symbolic power of charity. I mean, Farenthold goes on to show that actually, while Trump has claimed to give a hell of a lot of money to charity over the last couple of years, most of it has been either free rounds of golf or free rides on his plane or donations from his foundation, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, in which he had actually not given any of his own money for a long time and that he would regularly promise to give large donations to uh, important causes and then not pay up, and that he was taking advantage of the fact that promising to give and being respected for that pledge is actually sort of more important in terms of building your reputation and your status than actually doing the giving. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, as with a lot of things to do with the 45th president of the United <laughs> States, it's, it's, it's such an egregious example, as you say, that it almost, you know, it, it kind of, it's so far at one end of the spectrum that that it kind of maybe even clouds the subtleties of the issue, because you mm. look at it and you think, oh my God. And I, I mean, I guess actually, I, th I think I'm right in saying that the end result of all of that was that he and most members of his family now are kind of barred by the state of New York from being trustees of a charitable yes. foundation for the foreseeable so which is a very odd state of affairs and um, one thing you mentioned at the end there I think that um that really interesting is a couple of things where bringing that that example back to sort of the more the more nuanced middle ground I think raises some interesting questions and one of those is around the idea of pledging so you said there that actually one of the things Trump is able to do is to use the the trappery or the trappings of uh, trappery is not even a word trappings of uh, of charitable giving by sort of making an overt uh, act of the fact that he is involved in this generosity, but they're not actually having any of the substance of it. And I wondered with people who are, you know, one would presume uh, more more kind of 
positively motivated, whether there's still an issue where the, sh the emphasis of giving shifts more towards the kind of the statement and the pledge about the the intention to give and not the act itself. So you mm -hmm. see things like the giving pledge and, yeah. and others where, or Jeff Bezos again yeah. recently, where actually you get all of the kind of the credit and the kudos for saying you're going to do something. But the more that you then dissociate that from actually having to stump up the cash, mm -hmm. is that problematic because you're getting all of those good glow benefits? And then actually when, when it, the question of paying the money comes up, you sort of think, oh, do I have to? Um, and again, maybe that was what we saw a little bit with the Notre Dame uh, response. Um, so do you, do you think that's, you know, that's potentially one of the, the issues if we kind of separate these things too much? Yes, absolutely. And, th and those were the three examples that I, I was thinking of as well. Uh, Jeff Bezos pledged a huge amount of money to uh, environmental causes and, and fighting climate change, but we've yet to see the detail of that um, donation and what form it's going to take and who it's going to go to. After Notre Dame, there was an immense amount of criticism of the richest men in France who pledged uh, several hundred million euros to the rebuilding of the cathedral, and they have now given that money. Um, and actually, it's interesting that the actual giving of the the money didn't really get any sort of coverage in the press that actually the promise at the start did and the actual eventual giving happened much quieter once things had quietened down a bit and it was ordinary people really who were giving at the start of that and the giving pledge has been much criticized just people saying what well, I'll give at the end of my life just kicks the can down the road when actually a lot of the large-scale structural concerns need tackling now rather than at some unspecified date in the future perhaps. I think it's perfectly reasonable that people get some praise and some uh, worthy comment and people say that's a good thing that they decided rather than to just pass their um, wealth down in inheritance or spend it on another plane or helicopter that they've given it to a good cause and, and the, the charities associated with those three issues are worthy causes, whether they're the most worthy is a different debate. We're not, we're not trying to take away the fact that I would rather live in a world filled with people who do lots of stuff for charity than people who don't. I think we all would because we all benefit from it day to day. Um, it's when, as you say, that the good glow starts to actually become more important to people than the actual doing and the actual achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that, one of the things, again, that sort of struck me in reading the book, there's, there's the version of it where the donor themselves is kind of uh, overtly trying to harness that good glow. And you've you know, got the Trump at uh, one end of the spectrum, but even other donors, obviously, they're kind of there's a self-awareness about it. But but it also strikes me that even where the donor is not particularly looking for that or is kind of more motivated by something closer to pure altruism, there would still be the the critique from you know the likes of kind of Ananga Radas or Rob Reish or, or that 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 actually you know that's that's fine and it's good that they're well motivated and they might actually even be doing very good things but if that if the the sort of positive view of their philanthropy allows us to take our attention away from questioning you know their the role that they played in creating that wealth or the kind mm. of wider need for structural reform then that even if that donor themselves isn't doing it for that reason they are part of a wider problem do you do you think that that sort of bit of the good glow is also something that, that people are kind of grappling with at the moment yes yeah, so, and I think increasingly there is a 
kick back against that large scale giving and you, both yourself and, and Ben Soskis is a very good example. I think a guest you've had on the podcast before are people who've gone back through history and shown that this critique of, of large scale philanthropy is uh, not new. I, I'm wary of getting too involved at the minute, I think, in that large scale debate about what is the right balance between charity and the state. And um, it's an important debate to have, but I tried to separate it from uh, this one to a certain extent. Um, there's a great quote uh, from um, someone called Frank Guistra, who worked with the um, Clinton uh, Global Initiative. Um, and he said, well, it's very easy to uh, get people to in involved in this as a, as a form of their giving, because generosity is very good for business. And at the launch of the um, red clothing line that Emporio Armani did, uh, I think Armani himself said, um, hopefully this sort of charitable aspect of our business will make people have a better view of business in the future. And so there is always that element that uh, I think uh, Gira Doradas calls um, a cloak of generosity, that actually, to a certain extent, if you continue to give and if you give away a large amount, that means that you cover up to a certain extent, and I don't mean that particularly negatively, but you cover up this need for structural reform. And the, the tax system in the United States is to, to British eyes and British ears an absolute ghastly mess that allows people to take advantage of their giving in, in ways that mean that they're never gonna have to pay more tax than their secretary. Um, but to a certain extent, as a sociologist, I, I really am interested in how this happens more on a day-to-day -day level between individual people in especially things online or how UK charities and uh, smaller charities perhaps can use their positioning as quote unquote good moral actors uh, to uh, either have some impact or, or get their own way in policy terms. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're, you're right that this, this sort of idea of that, I mean, with all these things, I think once you start talking about a particular uh, bit or sort of slice of elite philanthropy you're actually kind of often dealing with different issues or different versions of issues from those that you would be talking about if you're talking about sort of mass giving um, and I, I definitely I'd like to come on and talk about that idea of charities themselves as organizations and the good glow that that that, that they have or the kind of um, symbolic status and, and power they have and how they can use that. Um, just before we do, one thing I wanted to ask is about how some of the these thoughts about the symbolic power of charity relate to um, the, the desire or the kind of professed desire on the part of a lot of donors to remain anonymous or kind of, you know, a, a cultural unease with being very open about giving, which perhaps is even more of a thing here in the UK, historically at least, than it has been somewhere like the US. Um, do you, how do you see those things playing out um and i one thing i'd, I'd love to, to bring in here is because i know you discuss it in the book is that amazing curb your enthusiasm sketch yes so in season six of curb your enthusiasm uh larry david donates some money to a los angeles uh, i think it's an art gallery doing a doing a display about the environment and climate change and on one wall it's written wing donated by larry david and he's there with his wife and he goes oh that's pretty good yeah i feel pretty good about that yeah well done me and then on the other side of the hall, it says wing donated by anonymous. And he's like, well, I'm not very happy about that. That's, that, shows, that seems like I'm doing it for the credit. I didn't know I could be anonymous. 
And then his wife goes, well, actually, it's Ted Danson. Anonymous is Ted Danson. And it's like, well, how do you know that? And she says, well, he just told a couple of people. And he said, well, he didn't just tell a couple of people. He told you. It turns out he told U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer. And the crowd give a small ripple of applause to Larry David at a later celebration. And, and Anonymous, who everyone knows is Ted Danson, gets a massive round of applause because he's uh, so... Um, He's so rejection. He's so much rejecting the uh, good glow of charity that he was happy to remain anonymous, even though he secretly wasn't. And Larry, in his usual way, rails against the unfairness of the world, saying, "I didn't know I could be anonymous and tell people." And so this story is a very interesting one about Larry David actually didn't want to take advantage of the good glow of charity, particularly he wanted a little bit of recognition. He wanted a small round of applause and that was it. But as soon as he saw someone else getting more of it, but actually in a very deceitful way, he actually rails at the unfairness of the world. Um, David Horton Smith, who's a, is a, one of the giants, I think, of voluntary sector studies, wrote that we have to be very careful in, in the sector of, of, of going for very dichotomous ends of arguments. Either charities are brilliant or they're awful, or either uh, all giving is wonderful or all giving is bad. And actually we fall in this, what he calls the angelic and the damned paradigm too much. That either we think of charities as the perfect organisations that can do no wrong, that are staffed by happy, smiling, perfect people, or they're all awful. They're all either incredibly inefficient or lazy or um, unprofessional, or they're completely uh, abdicating the government of its responsibilities. And actually, most activity is somewhere in the middle. We have to fall, we have to stop falling into those lazy stereotypes. And in that way, I think we should push back against this idea of pure giving. Is there this such thing as pure altruism? I don't think that's ever going to be the case. It's not ever possible. If you say, if someone benefits personally from some giving that they've done, therefore it wasn't proper altruism, it wasn't good enough. I think we're really going to end up in a situation where nobody ever does anything. In um, in Friends, there's a famous bit where Joey uh, says to Phoebe, well, it made you feel good and that makes it selfish. There's no such thing as a good deed as a selfless good deed, because if you do it and feel good about it, that's ruined it. And that's just not true. It's perfectly legitimate to feel good or be respected by other people more because you're doing good things for other people. None of us would want to live in a world where that wasn't the case, I don't think. And on that, actually, I mean, it strikes me an interesting thing. I'd be interested in your thoughts on, I, I see fundraisers using the concept of the sort of individual warm glow, even if they're not using that kind of language and sort of, you know, increasingly making the point that, you know, giving helps the person who's in receipt of the gift, but actually it's good for the donor as well in terms of well-being and, and it kind of makes you feel good. And people are sort of relatively unashamed about that. I, I'm not so sure that anybody would make the argument about, you know, giving's great because it'll make you look good in the eyes of other people. Do you, have you seen anyone sort of using that concept in interesting ways within fundraising so far so i'll give you one strange example from my own life that sort of that i that is that felt wrong at the time but i now have a grudging respect for um a couple of years ago i was at my parents house answered the door and there was a man in a suit there um signing up people for direct debits to the rspca and he said oh do you want to sign up and give to the rspca and i said no thank you and, he, and in something I'll never forget, he then sort of cocked his head to one side and said, oh, so don't you care about little kittens and puppies then? And I sort of 
horrified, just said, oh, sorry, no, and closed the door on him. And I think what he was trying to do was saying, well, if you'll look better, you won't look like a monster, you'll look like the kind of person who wants to surround themselves with cute, fluffy animals, if you give to this. It's, I think he was also implying that you'll be able to say, look, I'm giving to the RSPCA, I'm, I'm saving all these tiny defenceless creatures. And I do have a sort of grudging respect for that. I think we should have, we do think better of the people who who do things. I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, during the coronavirus pandemic, for instance, we set up a, a WhatsApp group on our road and there's a lady across the street from us who organises a collection for a food bank every week for an area of Sheffield that um, has quite high levels of deprivation. And every week she puts the bins out and people from across the street all go in and put certain bits of food and then she takes it every week. And every week she gets applauded on the face, everyone on the group, everyone goes, thank you for doing this, you're a star, well done, really appreciate it, you're doing such a good thing. And I don't think, and while a fundraiser or a volunteer manager might feel uncomfortable saying, look, actually, if you do this, people will think more of you. I don't think you'd ever say it like that. But it is, a, I think, a universal truth that people will think those things. It will be, uh, you will be thought of as maybe better or more caring or uh, more um, altruistic than other people on the road who are merely giving to the food bank or people who are completely ignoring it. And so while it might not be a day-to-day -day tactic that one can use, it's certainly there and it's certainly a truth. And I think what I'm trying to do in the book is point out these things that are there that we don't really talk about very much because we think they're a bit awkward or a bit maybe un-British. No, on on that actually, what he was explaining that made me think of another thing you talk about in the book um, around the the idea of um, poppy fascism, which it, it seems is related in that it's not that I mean I don't think fundraiser would go out and make a case that you should get one of these things because it'll make you look better, but there's definitely a kind of cultural phenomenon whereby in in many ways the absence of it or the you know the the failure to purchase and and display a poppy is seen as increasingly sort of problematic, particularly for public figures. Um, I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, it's it's complicated because it's tied up with sort of wider questions of militarism and, and that sort of thing. But in terms of that, that bit about a, an example of a sort of overt symbol of charitable behaviour, where it's become the case that actually not doing it has a social stigma attached. It's really interesting. Yeah, so um, I'm sure your British listeners will know this story, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it for the uh, uh, wider public who might be listening. Um, so every year around uh, Remembrance Sunday at the start of November, uh, we the British public come together to support a charity called the Royal British Legion, which is a charity founded after World War One, which uh, seeks to um, provide support and everyday help for um, service personnel and veterans. And the main way it does this is by raising money by selling uh, poppies, uh, uh, red and green paper poppies uh, with, held together on a, a plastic stem. And these poppies are made in factories where a lot of veterans uh, work or volunteer and they're sold and it raises a huge amount of money every year for this cause. What we found over the past couple of years, though, and what we've seen is an increase in what um, the first with the uh, Channel 4 newsreader, John Snow, termed poppy fascism, i.e. that if you're not wearing one, you are castigated socially as some sort of lesser, disrespectful, unloyal 
citizen. Um, and the papers every year are filled with stories about this public figure wasn't wearing a poppy, this newsreader wasn't wearing a poppy, how dare they, why do they not care about Britain's brave war dead? And it gets a bit silly, and actually it's probably stopped getting quite as silly as it did around especially the anniversary of uh, 100 years since the end of the First World War. The British Legion stay out of this debate as much as they can, I think. They uh, every year say, wearing a poppy is a personal choice, you don't have to buy one, you can wear one in whatever way you see fit, um, and they then that's where they leave it. But the press, especially the tabloid press, and now increasingly social media in the UK, which can be both be quite vicious, seek to embarrass or um, point out um, perceived snubs. There's a famous example where the cricketer uh, Moe Nally wasn't seen wearing the poppy in um, uh, an England team photo and his faith as a Muslim was held against him. Well, clearly he, he hates Britain's um, war dead. Actually what had happened was it had fallen off and there was a picture of him earlier before that photo of him wearing it and it had just fallen off. And those, those accidents, those tiny mistakes, those things that are meaningless get blown up into massive culture war style ideas. And I spoke to several people, for the book I did a couple of studies and one of them involved um, speaking to a lot of senior charity leaders in the UK, both in Sheffield and London, about various aspects of almost the state of charity at the minute and what role the good glow has in that. And there was a fundraiser who told me, if I'm going to a meeting around the start of November and I'm not wearing a poppy, I would rather be late to that meeting, having gone out my way to find a poppy seller and put one on, than show up to that meeting without wearing one. And as someone who personally, I can't abide lateness, I, I sort of didn't quite believe him, but he said, the risk to my business of showing up without a poppy is worth the lateness and I think people in professional environments often feel a bit pressured and a bit like well I have to do this for those reasons and that use of charity that sort of weaponization of a charity symbol and obviously it's a complex charity symbol because it's tied up with as you say the military with remembrance with history although it is principally used as a fundraising tool it's raised an enormous amount of money um, for the poppy appeal over the years um, the weaponization of a charity symbol comes back to this symbolic power thing. This is something that we all buy into. You can now argue that the NHS has become this symbol. And for you to reject it by choosing not to pay a pound and wear one is some sort of moral failing on your behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned the NHS. Um, there's definitely something I want to come back to in a minute, because I think there's a, a really interesting question about about what's happening at the moment in, in the UK around that. Um, I just wanted to to cycle back a second to ask in terms of that this question about, um, uh, I guess, around anonymity versus um, people's kind of uh, public awareness of what you're doing. Um, it's always been an option for people, you know, with large amounts of wealth to be relatively public because they sort of have a public profile. And I guess historically, that was harder for most of us. We could tell our friends and family and be annoying and sort of be seen as somebody who just banged on about doing lots of things for charity. But that was always relatively self-contained. Um, and it seems one of the things that's changed that 
totally is is um, social media, which has kind of democratized the ability to have a very wide public profile and for people therefore to kind of present versions of themselves to others much more widely um, and I know you write quite a lot in the book and some really interesting sort of things about how how some of this stuff plays out in in social media so what's your sense of kind of how social media has perhaps um, exacerbated or changed some of these these dynamics around the, the symbolic power of charity so social media has had such a huge impact on I think people's psyche and their relationship to wider society and other people. It, it, it's very, uh, when you try and condense it, it's very strange. I, you know, I'm on Twitter. I regularly will write a post about what I'm doing and I will send it out into the ether to tell potentially everybody in the world what I'm doing. And that's a very strange cultural move that's happened quite quickly over just probably 15 years since the launch of Facebook. Um, social media enables you to update the world on everything that you're doing, but you can choose to do it just on the things that you want the world to see. It speaks to um, quite a uh, reflexively maybe unsure world where people are wary of social interactions slightly more. They're wary of getting it wrong, but there are increased social laws. And so therefore a social media post that you can edit and rewrite and a selfie that you can take four or five times before you share it with the world to show absolutely your best face to the world means that there's a lot more um, what we might call ontological insecurity that things might go wrong, that you're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. Um, this is sometimes called humble bragging, I think is what you're referring to, which the Urban Dictionary describes when you usually self-consciously try to get away with bragging about yourself by couching it in a phony show of humility. And I spoke to a lot of young people about their experiences and perceptions of charity on social media and this issue that they worried that they might be seen as showing off if they if they did something for charity, if they overshared. Uh, I spoke to some young women who were um, raising money to go and build a school in Tanzania, and they said, well, we kept on having to share it, we kept on having to fundraise, you kept, keep on having to put the same post up again and again and again. And you're either wary that your friends are gonna start rolling their eyes or saying, mm, to what extent are they just doing this to present a certain way because all of them are present trying to present themselves in a certain way they're all trying to manufacture their profile to a certain extent I spoke to somebody else who said you can't help an old person across the road now without sharing it on social media why why do you have to do that why can't you just help them you don't have to tell everyone that you helped them it's this old if i donate 10 pounds in the forest and uh, does it make a sound if nobody's around to hear it issue and so I spoke to um, an, a, a young man who said that at his school two of his friends got into a fight because one of them um, their aunt had passed away and they were raising money for a cancer charity and one the other one didn't like the Facebook post or didn't share the Facebook post and they were like well, you clearly don't care about me or my aunt or this important cause and it's like no I just I just didn't see it or I just didn't click it it's not a big thing, is it? And that ties to a lot of the research on young people's experiences of social media. Nancy Jo Sales wrote a book called American Girls, which is an excellent exploration of the new rules of 
social media about, about young people who just get into massive fights and never speak to each other again because a Facebook post or an Instagram picture got less likes than somebody else's. It's where charity is rubbing up against society, if you will. Often there's not a huge amount of research, especially qualitative research, on the link between charity and social media about how is charity having to, which is quite old-fashioned a lot of the way, but quite slow a lot of times, although there are obviously things like crowdfunding that have exploded, versus the very new, quick, dynamic world of social media and what's happening when those two things bump up against each other. And, and social media, because of its reputation management potential, is a place where uh, the good glow and symbolic power comes out quite strongly, I think. Absolutely. I, I guess that brings us back around to the, the point you made, um, uh, brought up earlier about the, the NHS and something I wanted to ask you, which is obviously at the, you know, the moment everybody's aware that we're in an extremely unusual situation with the coronavirus pandemic. And, and actually, in terms of some of these questions about um you know charity and volunteerism but also social media it feels very timely because we're all having to kind of exist digitally much more than we would have done um otherwise perhaps although i guess many of us were already doing that anyway but there's also a, a massive focus on need in society and how we respond to it and and kind of new notions of collectivism and mutualism and certainly here in the uk one of the you know the understandably the big areas of focus has been giving to charities that are in some sense affiliated with the nhs and i, I wondered what your take was on you know how that is playing out and the extent to which you know the nhs has become the new sort of you know benchmark for uh for receiving a good glow when you're talking about what you're doing at the moment it seems as though you have to you know be out on the street clapping at eight o'clock on a <laughs> thursday and if you're doing stuff for charity you know giving money to, to captain tom moore and his fundraising efforts again that's linked to the nhs and joe wicks is always going on about the nhs and his uh p lessons for kids every morning and i'm absolutely not saying the nhs is not an incredibly important thing <laughs> amazingly important job but it in terms of people's understanding of how they will be perceived by others when they talk about their charitable activity that seems to me really interesting at the moment yeah so there's a couple of really interesting complex debates going on within that within that sphere and maybe we could try and tease some of them out the nhs is doing an incredible job and it's an incredible institution but it's not uncriticizable and it shouldn't be uncriticizable and how it's funded shouldn't be not up for debate i think it's perfectly legitimate in a in a democratic society to have questions about what extent of it should be uh, government funded how much money should it get each year to what extent should it be responsible for public health and social care all of those are important um, concepts so a lot of the money that's been raised for the nhs charities such as um tom moore's the uh, walk around his garden a hundred times a hundred year old who raised over 30 million pounds for the NHS charities fund in I think for most people the general public are holding that up as a purely good thing he's absolutely rightly surrounded by the the good glow the symbolic power of charity and we hold him up as a hero someone who's done what he could in order to raise money for those extra things that the NHS needs and the charities aren't being used to fund core NHS care, they're being used to uh, fund added extras uh, that smooth the process along, maybe make it easier for healthcare professionals at this time when they're working so hard and doing so much good. 
But within the charity sort of research sphere, there was a lot of discussion online about what this charity was for. Should is are we starting to think of the NHS as a charity? Is there a danger of slippage that will start to think of the NHS as something that people should be donating to rather than funded by um, taxation? And that's a very interesting debate and we'll see how it plays out. But charities have always been associated with the NHS and with the health service in this country. In Sheffield, for instance, the, we have the Sheffield Children's Hospital and that one of Sheffield's most famous charities is the Sheffield Children's Hospital charity that works to raise money to buy extras for Sheffield Children's Hospital, including medical equipment, such as an MRI scanner that can uh, be used on very tiny babies and toddlers, for instance. Now, some people would definitely argue that that sort of machinery, that sort of medical equipment should just be core NHS spending, that however much we spend on the NHS in this country, £115 billion approximately, should just be increased until all the hospitals have all the equipment that they need. But the NHS is always going to want more money, and it's not necessarily always the best um, way of organising it. The, the, their the extent to which they people in public health or social care would say, well, actually, the NHS doesn't spend its money always that well. You can't just keep giving it more and more and more because it's so symbolically powerful. And actually, maybe some of the problems that we faced in this country in healthcare, both during the coronavirus pandemic and during the past 10 years, have been the NHS is overprotected and over-celebrated, and our care homes and our public health are under-celebrated and under-protected. And actually having this shining golden beer moth is actually quite dangerous in terms of when you need three agencies or four agencies working together. Famously, um, it, to take this to quite a, a sad discussion, um, when um, the baby pee scandal happened and there was a failure in child protection in Haringey Council and, and this child was... Uh, killed by his parents, Great Ormond Street Hospital was partially to blame for that. It wasn't all down to the social workers or all down to the locum doctors. Great Ormond Street failed in their protection of care as well. But because they are Great Ormond Street, because they're probably one of the most untouchable organisations in the country, they were left out or they managed to avoid a lot of the opprobrium that went down on the council, the social workers, the agencies that we feel happier um, criticising. And that, this is where that sort of automatic um, assumption of goodness can start hurting people. And it's true of the NHS, it's true of public agencies, it's true of any part of government or, or state funded um, issues. And it's also true of the charity sector. Organisations that we hold up as perfect or wonderful are often not, are often and I go through in the book several examples where they're involved in quite dodgy behaviour. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I was making, I was thinking then actually, there's in terms of that symbolic power of charities themselves. As you say, there's the example of Great Ormond Street, but I think also in terms of the the way in which charities are, I guess I'm going to use the word used, although I guess that's a loaded word, by policymakers and others. You see, for instance, when they want to do things like distribute fines that they've made for you know banking infringements or whatever, they, they quite often go to charities as a sort of unquestionable means of 
giving money out because you know give it what what we'll do with this money that might otherwise be slightly controversial is give it to charity because then we're taking advantage of that symbolic power i think one of the really interesting things about the the example at the moment and what you're saying about the nhs is it seems like an example where charities are actually leaning on the symbolic the much greater symbolic power of a part of the public sector and i i wonder you know the extent to which this heralds a kind of bigger shift in people's perception where actually you know different elements of the public sector are seen as the the benchmark for for what is has sort of symbolic power and actually charities increasingly will need to sort of uh, associate themselves with those elements of the public sector in order to to be seen in the right light by people i mean do you think do you think that's possible uh, possibly. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to know if there were other elements of the public sector in the UK beyond the NHS that would have the same pulling power. Um, certain um, theorists of the modern state and uh, the past 10 years of British politics have basically said we could end up with a, a government that is basically the NHS and the police and that everything else is left to wither on the vine to a certain extent, but that's probably a debate for another day. The, yeah, abs no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I think is interesting is that, is that phrase, yes, well, if we're doing it for charity, therefore it's fine. And and to bring it to maybe a lighter point in the book, you go through, go through these examples of places where people say, well, I'm doing it for charity and therefore it's okay. And we're well used to celebrities being gunged or being forced to do really upsetting or scary things, skydives or... or um, parachutes or uh, or bungee jumps for instance things that they don't want to do because it's for charity or sitting in a tub of baked beans in a town square while the mayor throws some fish at you oh well it's okay it's for charity and it is fine it's for charity but it, but isn't that strange isn't that odd that as soon as you attach the oh but it's for charity therefore it makes it okay label to something that we end up going well we can't really criticize it because it's for charity um, there was a there was a report about the well, work of the World Wildlife Foundation that BuzzFeed did a, a couple of months ago, and in their work to protect um, certain uh, an, uh, endangered species, they'd ended up employing militia gangs who had who had partaked in in widespread violence and um, I think murder. In order to uh, sort of take advantage of the of the charity's uh, insistence on saving endangered species, that's that's an extraordinary thing. It's the charity commission said this is absolutely not what we would expect of charities, and so we end up in this very situation where that moral legitimacy just gets borrowed and borrowed and borrowed until it actually doesn't mean anything anymore because it's used to excuse all sorts of extraordinary behaviours. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I, I'm aware I'm in severe danger of keeping you too long here, John, but I just wanted to <laughs> ask one thing on that, because the question that occurred to me is that example there, we've got an organisation that has done something questionable, despite the fact it's a charity and people become aware of it. In, in my mind, raises a question of, of whether from the donor's point of view, that that good glow is seen as more about the the act of giving itself. So you're sort of like, well, I've done something for charity or the extent to which there is any onus on them to think about what's actually achieved with their money. Um, so, you know, do you think that actually as we kind of 
put more focus on outcomes or sort of impact um and there's a whole debate about you know whether how much people are actually doing that but if we we question not just the giving of the money but what is achieved with it that might change the emphasis so people to get the good glow you actually have to have some sense that your money has achieved something it's not enough just to have given it in the first place that would be useful i think if we could move to a situation where people I suppose paid that much attention to a story and could see it through and I think that's the problem these things are often immediate that you often get you know most stories for most people are a one-day intervention and then they forget about them they're not going to see the implementation of a of a funding proposal on a project and see it through to, and then look, read the data on whether the on the randomized control trial about whether it had a good impact or not it's the famous story about the uh, play pump which was a new way of pumping water developed for uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where instead of the traditional hand pump, uh, villages would have a uh, roundabout installed that kids could play on and that would pump the water. And loads of people, the, the Bush um, government at the time, Jay-Z, other celebrity backers, put, yeah, this is great, this is so innovative, this is so clever, and said this is a wonderful way of, of giving and, and sort of, the, the makers of it were celebrated as this uh, new transformative way of of um, solving a, a water crisis problem and yet actually they didn't work they broke down more uh, local women were embarrassed to use them obviously when children got tired no water could be pumped and the whole thing just fell apart and actually they much preferred the hand pumps and that says a lot about sometimes the top-down approach of, of, of Western aid and, and post-colonial ways of thinking, here's what we think you ought to have, it looks good to our eyes, it's, it's got lots of celebrity backers so therefore have it, even if it doesn't work. But it also says about just because the day one story is something to be celebrated doesn't mean that actually it ended up working very well. In the UK, Kids Company would be another interesting example. This was the charity for disadvantaged young people that worked mostly in South London, but also offshoots elsewhere. And for a long time, that was held up as the beacon of, of children's charities in the UK in many ways, as a, as a radical transforming place. And lots of prime ministers uh, celebrated the work of Camilla Batman-Gelish and her team, and uh, as did Prince Charles. Yet actually, a lot of it was built on sand and the charity crumbled quite quickly uh, for financial and other reasons. And unpicking that sort of case study, which hasn't had much academic ink spilt over it, it's actually quite an interesting place where you think actually doing low level, boring work that doesn't really produce much of a good glow because nobody ever hears about it, it's often more important than doing these uh, big boom things and I think that the 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 quick elevation of lots of military charities in the UK in the in around 2005 and then the extent to which they have now diminished to a certain extent probably a similar example yeah absolutely and and it's um, an absolutely fascinating topic and there's uh, lots of stuff in the book on the kids company example uh, in particular um i i could honestly keep, keep talking about this for hours but i'm uh, aware that you probably need to do things uh, and also that people don't necessarily want to listen to me talk 
uh, for hours. But um, I, I just I'll put links in the show notes to to the book, um, which is out now. And I'd certainly you know, I'm going to recommend to anybody listening to this to go out and get a copy because there's loads of absolutely fascinating stuff in there. Um, but before I let you go, is there anything else you want to um, sort of final thoughts or anything you want to direct people's attention towards? Uh, no, just to say, well, thank you very much for having me on. There's a couple of um, blogs online. Uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, which is John Dean Stuff, you'll be able to uh, find various things, other small pieces that I've written to see if the uh, book's for you. And if you do read the book and have any thoughts about it, I'd really appreciate you getting in touch. I'm, you can find my email address online. I really want this to be uh, the start of something. This isn't. This is me testing a theory. This is me taking a, a quite a you know, what can be a dry um, academic theory from the world of uh, Pierre Bourdieu's sociology and putting it out there with hopefully some colourful um, esoteric examples from the charity sphere and saying, here is a way of thinking about how charity works and what it means to people. What do you think? Does it work? What's it going to mean for you in terms of uh, practice or research or uh, theory um and how can we test it more and, and pull it apart more so really uh, please let me know if you do read it uh, what you think great and i'll yeah i'll put links to some of those articles as well in the show notes so people can you know find those if they listen to this podcast thank you um, just remain stay thanks ever so much for finding some time to come on the podcast um you know i hope the sales of the book go go well and certainly um you know maybe further down the line um can get you back on the podcast at some point to kind of pick up on some of these things and and see how they've developed that'd be great thank you very much Rodri. okay great well my thanks again to john for finding the time to come on the podcast i thoroughly enjoyed uh, having that chat and uh, definitely could have kept going with that for for a lot longer um uh, i will put links in the show notes to things we talked about some of the articles john's written recently and where you can get hold of a copy of his book um if you're interested sort of more broadly in things to do with charity and civil society um check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or at philitracy uh if you like the sort of history and academic side of stuff as well um drop us a line if you've got ideas for people i could talk to on the podcast or topics we could cover uh, at giving thought at cafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it give us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and i'll see you next time bye